Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 11, Mission Control. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So on this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, astronauts, flight controllers, all to tell you all the coolest information about NASA. But we're not the only NASA podcast to do so. As you may know, the Cassini mission came to a close last week on September 15th, 2017, by literally diving into Saturn. It has made some amazing discoveries, collecting critical data on the ring planet Saturn and the icy moon Enceladus, and even landing a probe, the Huygens probe, on the geologically fascinating moon Titan. If you want to hear more about what Cassini did and learn, check out the NASA in Silicon Valley podcast. Our friends over at NASA Ames Research Center talked with some of the experts on a few episodes, actually, about the mission and what they've learned about the sixth planet and its moons. And of course, a big congratulations to the scientists and engineers who worked so hard to make this mission such a success. So today, here on Houston, we have a podcast. We're talking about mission control with Mary Lawrence. She's a flight director here at the NASA Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. And we had a great discussion about what it's like inside mission control, what it takes to be a flight controller and a flight director, how mission control has evolved, and what it may look like in the future. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Mrs. Mary Lawrence. Enjoy. Minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch the midlife circuit. Here she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Well, it's great to see you again. Um, Last time I saw you, we were working on the uh, Everything About MCC video, very fast-paced. And yeah. Did pretty well on Facebook, 450,000 views. That's a now. lot. I try not to think about that, really. <laughs> But it was so fun. It was like, uh, I mean, we, we titled it Everything. I mean, it wasn't really everything, but it was, it, it was a, like fast-paced information. You got to know more about Mission Control than I guess people would normally kind of find out. And we got to be on the floor. It's kind of different though that they didn't have the uh, the titles up there, you know, while we were missing that flight director, GC, those kinds of things. Yeah, that'll be good. The we'll time. make improvements for next one, right? <laughs> for the next one. Okay, so welcome to the podcast. For this one, we don't have to be as rapid fire, so that's good. We okay. can kind of take our time. Uh, but today we're here to talk about mission control, and I feel like you're the perfect person to do this because you are a flight director. You're in that. You're in mission control, making all the decisions. And I guess that's sort of what a flight controller does, or uh, sorry, a flight director does, right? You're you're kind of the the main person in that room. That's right. Yes, okay. the flight director is the lead of the flight control team, so they're kind of the final decision maker and. Uh, real-time spacecraft operations. Cool, and you do that how often in general? I spend a lot of time on console. I'm one of the newer flight directors, <laughs> okay. so probably spend a little more time on console than some of the uh, more experienced guys that have a lot more assignments. Um, but I would say over the past year, I probably pulled about 100 shifts. Whoa. So one shift is about eight to nine hours long, mm-hmm. eight hours with a one hour handover period. Mm-hmm. And we do that every few weeks. We're on console for a string of anywhere anywhere from one to seven shifts, I would say. Okay, and there's three shifts in a day, right? That's just how, because you have that handover period, so nine, 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 you guys can exchange information and pass that on to the next person. So. That's right, we have the day shift, and then the swing shift, which is three to midnight, and then the overnight All right. shift, the fun yeah, one. The fun one. <laughs> well, awesome. So. I'm really excited about this topic because whenever you think about 
NASA and, you know, I, I, NASA as a whole, really, but also the Johnson Space Center, you think of mission control. You think of, you know, the people sitting at the desks, looking at the screens, watching and controlling the mission. And that mission being a lot of the human spaceflight missions, especially the ones to the moon. You know, you think about the legendary Gene Krantz, and, and you think about some of the, those... Um, those key players in the in the Apollo landings and and everything else to to make the space race happen or sure. to, to you know to win the space race and and make human spaceflight possible landing on the moon so very excited about this you're on the ground floor you're making all the decisions as you just said kind of describe the the setup you know what are you seeing when you're sitting at the flight director desk what's what's all the that the data in front of you what are you looking at you know and uh, kind of what what's it like without the ambiance the vibe Sure. Um, so, like you said, it is kind of an inspiring place to work. So yeah. you're working in a hallway where giants of human spaceflight operations walked before you. So sure. it's always a very inspirational thing to even walk into the building and see Chris Kraft's name written, you know, in, in big letters on the side. So yeah. um, I agree with you from that aspect. And then inside the room, of course, it's very modernized compared to um, how they flew spacecrafts back then. Mm-hmm. Um, we have basically computer systems and lots of screens filled with data. That data is coming from the computer network essentially on the spacecraft, so on the International Space Station in this in this example. Um, and then it's sent down through a, a satellite of um, a network of satellites and to more computers here on the ground <laughs> where it displays data so that the flight controllers can interpret basically the health and status of whatever system they are monitoring. So at any given time, we can um, see whether or not a light fails on board, for example, or a thruster or something more significant. We can can see if there's a fire on board based on the uh, monitoring of the smoke detectors. Okay, so, so we can monitor all of the data. Yeah, so that, that's essentially what you're doing, especially for International Space Station, right? You, that's correct. The mission in this example that you're controlling is the flight of the International Space Station and the operations of that and the things that you're looking at and everyone in the room, and I guess outside the room too, and we can get into that later, but they're looking at data, different types of data coming from from the International Space Station. They're looking at data based on the system that they're in charge of. So the okay. spacecraft is kind of divided into what we call systems. So mm-hmm. you can think of it like the computer system is one system, the mm-hmm. communication system is another, um, environmental systems. So everything that the crew needs to kind of live on board is grouped under one flight control team. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, so we have an entire console dedicated to just tracking the stowage on board. So as you can imagine, there's a lot of stuff that we have yes. to keep track of. <laughs> Anything from crew food to um, replacement computers or replacement um, electrical parts. We have to be able to plan for things to break and to be able to replace them. So we have a bunch of spares. So we have an entire console position that's really dedicated to tracking all of those things so we know where it is. Yeah, and the, and the crew too, right? They can call down and say, hey, I lost this. Can you find it for me? And then you have that person on console that, that can actually exactly. find that for you. Exactly. So cool. everyone is monitoring their data, but they're also... Um, they're using procedures, what we call procedures, which are kind of steps that hmm. guide you in how to fly the spacecraft in a way. So we're uh-huh. also sending commands from the ground okay. where we can um, 
we can turn lights on and off or um, we can hand over attitude control to the Russian segments. And, you know, it kind of helps guide us through any operation to essentially fly the space station from the ground. So, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, based on what you're saying, communication is just vital to all of this. Everyone has to be talking. So how does that work? You know, how, how is everyone, is everyone just on like a big chatter or are you, can you talk to specific people? How does, how does that communication setup work? You can really talk to anyone you need to. So you'll notice people in that room have headsets on Yes. and we talk over what's called voice loops. Um, so every console position has a loop that's dedicated to them. So if someone wants to call them, they can call in a specific loop. And then there's also loops that everyone really listens to. We, Mm -hmm. We call the space to ground loops are the loops that the crew calls down to uh, Mission Control on. So everyone's listening to those loops at any given time. Um, Only certain people are unable to talk back to them on those (laughs) loops, um, but everyone's listening to those. There's a a loop to talk to the flight director, and everyone's listening to the flight director loop. Mm -hmm. So I generally talk to everyone on the flight loop so that everyone can hear the conversations that we're having and the decisions that are being made. But if I want to talk to someone um, and not everyone else needs to hear it, I can call on certain other loops. So I can talk to our international partners for example Uh I can coordinate with the European flight director or the um, Japanese flight director or the Russian flight director on other coordination loops so is that part of your job is to is to handle that coordination or do you have someone in the room that's dedicated to that as well Um, A little bit of both. So all of the teams are kind of talking to each other based on their roles and responsibilities. Hmm. Um, But it is my job to do the overall leading. So we share responsibility with the Russian flight director. Mm -hmm. And um, I also have to coordinate with the other international partners kind of all over the world. So All right. Yeah. (laughs) We're talking to everyone all the time. Yeah. Constant, constant talking. so you, you kind of talk with everyone on the flight director loops. People are listening back, but uh, so how does that, so say, you know, an astronaut calls down and we'll, we'll use the, the inventory guy and that's, that's ISO is that console, is console, right? ISO. That's correct. So they'll call down and they'll, they'll say, hey, where is this? ISO knows where it is, but then you said, you know, only certain people can, can talk back to them. Who, who are those people and how does that work? Right. So the crew would call down and ask a question. Of course, everyone is listening to that question. Mm-hmm. Um, the person that has the answer to the question would respond on the flight loop yeah. um, with the answer. And okay. so they would call the flight director and um, answer the crew's question. Of course, then flight would decide whether or not that that is what we want to call up to the crew. Yeah. And that information gets um, also heard by what we call the CAPCOM who's the capsule communicator is what's that short for. And they are the ones that talk directly to the crew. Ah. So they're talking to one consistent person who they usually know. A lot of times it is a fellow astronaut that sits in that chair. Um, Mm -hmm. And they're talking to them consistently for, you know, an eight hour time period. Okay. So it is is kind of a change. So they'll call to the general space ground. Everyone's listening to that. And ISO is a part of that conversation, but he's going to be, he or she is going to be notifying the flight director, everyone in the room, you know, I understand this message. Here's where it is. But then Capcom's going to going to send that back up. Capcom's going to package the information and send it up to the crew. So this is, so this is kind of like, I guess, 
we're talking mainly international space station operations right so this is like a this is like a normal day this is thing people are calling down you're talking back and forth people are looking at data um, but what what other things can you train for you know what what is what other things can a flight controller do the the flight controller being the person sitting in mission control the general the general person right uh, well, we train for all sorts of operations. So okay. the majority of the time we're on console really for what we call increment operations, which is just day-to-day -day operations for the crew. Okay. And right now for International Space Station, the goal and the focus for the crew is um, to perform science on board. Okay. So we do a lot of the day-to-day -day flying of the space station to make sure that the crew can do what only astronauts can do, okay. which is science in space. So they, for, for the majority of their day now, are doing um, science experiments mm -hmm. and such. So we're just enabling them to be able to do that as part of our job. Um, but there are days where we call them, you know, high tempo ops or um, <laughs> critical operations such as EVAs or we're getting ready for a vehicle to dock to the space station okay. where there's some really highly coordinated intense operations that we practice for ahead of time. Mm -hmm. We spend, you know, weeks to months preparing for those types of operations and then uh, we have kind of a specialized team or a flight specific team that will support for the for the day of the operation and that's like a you know when you say eva is spacewalk so you spacewalk, this is all exactly. coordinating um ahead of time you come into the room have a dedicated team that knows you know what's going on for this spacewalk but then i guess uh, you know how much how much of the room changes you have that dedicated team but is everyone focusing mainly on their part too so you, like you said one of the systems was the life support the the environmental person the person that's concerned about it. so are they just looking at that or is are they are is their role changed as well their role hasn't changed it okay. might expand a little bit you know they might be doing additional operations that they don't normally do on a normal day hmm. okay. um, but they're essentially working the same system and they're working within the same system boundary that they would and that they've mm -hmm. trained for. But there's additional flight controllers that, that do show up on busier days like that, like okay. the EVA officer, for example. EV, yeah, yeah They don't support all the time, but they come in and support when they're when we're actually doing spacewalks or preparing to do spacewalks. Yeah, because they know the intricate details of what that's going to take, right? They know every, every procedure, and they can make recommendations based right. on their knowledge. They're in charge of pulling off that operation um, <laughs> and they know everything about it and the equipment that it takes to do so. I like that terminology, uh, high, you say high tempo operations? High I like tempo that. ops, cool. yeah. Um, so a lot of dockings and, and, and so what if a cargo vehicle, you know, obviously uh, astronauts are going to run out of stuff and then they want new stuff, you know, new experiments and obviously they need more food and you need to put fuel and, and supplies, all that kind of stuff. So so that's part of the high tempo stuff, right? You got cargo missions going up and down. That's right. You got people going up and down. Mm -hmm. So so it's, it's kind of a dynamic environment. So what other things besides, you know, International Space Station can we be... Uh, are you guys thinking about? Are, you know, I know. Um, for example, EFT one a couple of years ago. How was that? How was that different uh, from a mission control standpoint uh, versus you know, I guess normal operations of the International Space Station? Right. Um, it's really kind of an exciting time for yeah. for NASA. I would say we have the International Space Station, so we're doing really great science and learning a lot about what it would take to do um, kind of deep space operations where we're in space for a long duration period mm -hmm. of time and that's kind of the idea with the international space station it's kind of a platform to um, try out technology and um, learn a lot more about humans living in space for a long duration but it's not um, it's only 200 miles 
in the sky. Okay. So it's in what we call low Earth orbit. So uh, yeah. um, we would really need a really big rocket, similar <laughs> to what we did um, back in the Apollo days, to take us to the moon. To take it. us to yeah, to yeah. take us to what um, we call deep space. Right. And that's the Orion project mm-hmm. that you allude to. So we did a test flight of the SLS, which is the rocket mm-hmm. that they're building, mm-hmm. um, that will launch Orion to that those deep space missions. So. Yeah. We're, um, as the operations team, we're just right now learning about the design of the rocket and trying to give input to the engineers that are designing the rocket, designing the capsule um, that will take us to deep space. So when it's time to design the actual mission and operation to do that, we're ready because we've been working on um, understanding the capabilities of the spacecraft. Um, And then our team will work to design the rendezvous profile to help take us to wherever we're going to go. Okay. Um, and we'll understand a lot about the spacecraft, and I imagine um, we'll be structured similar to how we are today, where the system, the spacecraft will be broken up into um, various systems. That's how it was for the test flight. Mm-hmm. And we supported from a different room in Mission Control to support yeah. that mission. So I'm guessing it'll be, uh, you know, a lot of the same folks that have their specialties will be kind of associated with that same specialty in a way on... Uh, I guess EM1 would be Exploration Mission 1 is what they're calling it now, for the one that they're going to test the SLS, the Space Launch System, the, the deep space rocket with with Orion. Um, so, like, you know, the life support people will be looking at the life support, and the uh, the thermal guys will be looking at the thermal, you know, those. So, so you're going to have kind of the same similar roles or... I guess. It'll be very, very similar yeah. to that. Of okay. course, there'll be a flight director that leads the team, sure. and we already have flight directors assigned to, mm-hmm. to working on those missions. Oh, cool. We'll have systems, you know, controlled by flight controllers. The one unique thing that we haven't done since really the shuttle days is the asset entry aspect of the mission. Ah. So the actual controlling of um, the operations of launch and okay. um, re-entry. Of course, we partner, you know, with the launch control team that yeah. will be in Florida, in Florida. as well for okay. this, similar to how it was in the shuttle days. But so we haven't done we haven't done you know launch and re-entry since. Um, the shuttle program. Right, yeah, back in uh, 2011. And how, mm-hmm. how did that work? It was, um, so from my understanding, Kennedy Space Center in Florida, they do all the launch operations. And then it gets to, at what point does Johnson Space Center take over? So I don't know the agreements that we have oh, okay. for for EFT, or for um, the Orion missions mm-hmm. yet, but okay. it's shortly after liftoff is where the, the handover really occurs. Okay, yeah. and you guys were training for that whole process going from shortly after liftoff right through the atmosphere and whatever mission they decide yeah. to do. We're sitting yeah. in the control center here in, in Houston also monitoring the systems as they prepare for launch and then shortly after launch they would hand over to the control team here in Houston. Cool. Mm-hmm. So for each of those um, each of those positions, you know, it's not like you, they, you just sit down and start looking at data and you know what to do. Obviously, there's going to be some practice that kind of goes with, with learning that role and becoming, you know, having that title of flight controller. So, so what does that look like? It's a fairly intensive training program. Okay. So most people that come in have an engineering background. I'd say that's the most common degree, mm-hmm. um, but a space science related background are also common. Mm-hmm. So you come in already with kind of an engineering way of thinking. Okay. Um, and then you're taken uh, within your team to really start learning specifics about the system. So you spend a fair amount of time just learning how the system works. Mm-hmm. Um, once you get deep enough into your training flow, you start into what we call simulations, where you practice 
doing mission operations. Yeah, working um, with those systems. That's yeah. right. Yeah. And you're evaluated at various points throughout your training to make sure that you're on track. Okay. And once you pass your final evaluation, you spend some amount of time on console, probably with a mentor or someone sitting next to you that's been doing the job, and they're evaluating how you perform mm -hmm. real time. Um, and that takes probably about a year and a half to make it into wow. your first certification. Wow, I mean, you know, when, when you're sitting there, you have a lot of responsibility, right? So at these, in these simulations, and I'm, I'm assuming you do these quite a few times, right? You know, it's not just one or two simulations. You're That's doing, right. and several. you have to, yes. several. You know, I always equate it to, I, I mean, you know, I'm not a flight controller, but I was a lifeguard. So I kind of know, like, you have to know a lot of stuff, but you know, you're not necessarily, for the most part, you're sitting and watching at the pool. But when stuff, you know, when stuff happens, you have to you know have to exactly ready. what that's to right. do. So I'm assuming it's kind of the same, right? So that's what it's a simulation is. A simulation is stuff happens. They throw stuff, something at you, and you have to know exactly what to do. And, and that's kind right. Of we have process. a pretty high fidelity uh, simulator that simulates um, data, just like we would be seeing from the actual spacecraft. So it's okay. really hard to distinguish looking at. Um, Simulation data versus real-time mm -hmm. data. The simulator is really good that way. And then yeah. we have a team of instructors sitting in a different building, kind of across campus here, okay. that are putting in malfunctions and have scripted kind of a, a fun, difficult case for us <laughs> to be able to handle as a team. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. <clears throat> they throw everything at you, and you got to be ready. They're really good at it. <laughs> Those are long, too, right? You gotta, I mean, you're going to be doing the simulations for a couple hours, right? They're usually about eight hours, similar like to our shift then. Okay. To our shifts, yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so, when you think about the folks that are at the console, are they are they flying solo for that console? Or I mean, I, there's something called a back room, right? So you're gonna have support. You're gonna have pe extra people looking at the same data, That's right. helping you make decisions. Sometimes. Okay. So sometimes. on real quiet times, um, you know, increment operation time periods when it's the weekend in okay. the middle of the night, um, <laughs> we try to go down to the minimal amount of people. Um, needed so mm -hmm. in those cases you wouldn't necessarily uh, be talking to a lot of people in the back rooms but during those high tempo operations that i was talking about right. the evas um, visiting vehicles or even really busy days mm -hmm. on orbit we would definitely have a, a lot of people supporting from back rooms from the um, mer room which is essentially the engineering mm -hmm. teams so there's a lot of people that are supporting in other rooms other than the front the front flight control room. Yeah, that we're I'm, talking to you on those same voice loops. <laughs> so I was, uh, I just started training for doing commentary for uh, spacewalks, and so I, I did my first solo run for I think it was, I forget the number, EVA forty one. I think it was the one where um, uh, Peggy Whitson and Shane Kimbrell were out, and it was the same one where they um, uh, the shield was inadvertently lost. Yeah, so very they, exciting. They, and. Exactly, very exciting, and all of a sudden, all these flight controllers and engineers had to come together. You know, they came into a room and they said, "Okay, what are we going to do? Because we don't have a shield anymore, we can't get it." And they figured out that it was going to—it wasn't going to hit them again or anything, so everything was fine. But but they didn't have that piece anymore. They needed to figure out what to do, and so they figured out that they can actually take one of the shields that they just removed from another piece and use that as the shield. And they figured out exactly where to tie everything just absolutely crazy and, and you got to do that lightning fast come up with a decision and procedures and implement it super fast so I'm guessing these are the things that they're that they're training for yeah so that was their little mini Apollo 13 <laughs> moment right everyone's been comparing it to that but right yeah that, that's essentially what flight control is it's yeah. you do a lot of training to understand your system in a really 
um, in-depth way so that when something breaks, um, understanding how it works isn't something you really need to do. We already mm -hmm. know that. So it's just uh, a matter of what resources do we have available and what, um, what do we need this thing to do mm -hmm. and um, to come up with a solution. There's always a solution. It's absolutely incredible. So, I mean, you know, flight controllers, uh, engineers, all working together, but, but for, for you in your case, you're a flight director. You made it, you know, you're the top job, you're making those decisions. So, so what, did, what did you study and, and what was kind of your path to get to that, to get that position? So it's kind of all about leadership once you get to the flight director position, but it's yeah. also um, about understanding the capability of your team and understanding mm -hmm. the teamwork. So it's just, it takes an incredible amount of teamwork and trust to, to be able to be a flight director and, and help you know, make those final decisions. But it's kind of all about the team surrounding me. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say my background, I started out in flight control, so I definitely had um, a good feel of how flight control teams work based on my experience. Mm -hmm. And then I spent some years in management, so managing people and flight control groups and all um, NASA. just getting a little more organizationally intelligent. Yes. Okay, yeah, all at NASA. And then what was your, you, um, you said mostly engineers. Are you an engineer too? Do you have a degree? I have a mechanical engineering degree. New mechanical right. engineering, okay, mm -hmm. yeah, That's cool. So. Um, then you trained, you, you had some years of management and then came on as a flight director. So, so what kinds of training did you have to go through in order to, to get to that point, to, to, you know, to learn what it takes to be a flight director? So before I became a flight director, most of my knowledge was pretty, um, uh, pretty narrow, I would say, in one specific field. So I spent most of my time in International Space Station operations and the computer system or communication side of the house with a little bit more mixed in. Um, when I became a flight director, it's all about kind of opening up the world around you and learning a little bit of everything because mm -hmm. you really have to be able to understand what anyone um, is talking to you about so that you can make a, a decision about it. So similar to, I'd say, the, the astronauts training flow, oh. we take um, kind of a high-level um, classes and courses and um, meet with a lot of instructors from all over the organization Very to cool. learn a little bit about what everybody is doing. Yeah, to yeah. know, you know, if you have a problem as a flight director, okay, you know, let's get some information over here. You know, there's certain kind of decision-making processes. Right. You have, to, you have to, to know how everything fits together. Yeah. And, I, you know, leadership is definitely, I, I got to say, one of the top qualities. Well, you probably know more, better more than me, but I would say leadership is definitely the, the top quality of, a, of to be a flight director. But what are the sort of kind of, kind of personal, like, personal qualities do you have to have you have to be do you have to be um uh type a you know i imagine like a type a you know decisive kind of or you know, is there a is there a listening component you know a, a nice balance you know what what is it what kind of personal it's qualities? probably all of those things okay i'd okay. say there's definitely some type a's around <laughs> the building um but you don't have to be there's a lot of yeah. we, i work with a lot of different personality types that are really great flight controllers and sure. kind of the baseline skill to be able to support mission operations or flight controller operations is um being able to communicate, mm -hmm. being able to work as a team. So you're able to do well listening, but also responding and thinking quickly. Mm -hmm. um, you're a good decision maker, you're a good hard worker. Yeah. And you're able to, to communicate. That's probably, I'd say, one of the biggest. <laughs> Assuming that um, you're competent in your field, obviously <laughs> you need to study hard to, 
to understand your system but for sure to be able to communicate and understand how everything fits together and integrate with the team so ima- really i'm imagining like a sort of you know kind of quarterback kind of philosophy of, of that style of leadership and communication and that sort of thing along the same lines if you're the quarterback are you are you working when you say team are you working with the same team members all the do you have like some core personnel that you always know and have a strong relationship with that makes it successful or is it kind of does it rotate so everyone understands uh, the different types of personalities with different flight directors that's and a good question yeah. um, in some cases we are working with a very specific team that was assigned to do a specific thing oh, like okay. um, a visiting vehicle flight is a really good example so mm. I'm going to be leading the SpaceX 12 mission that's coming up in um, later this year and um, I have specific flight controllers that are assigned to work that mission. So we will do flight specific simulations and prep for that mission. Uh, we also have a bunch of meetings and um, work through all the products that are needed in prep for that mission. So I'm working with a specific team in that case. Okay. But a lot of days um, just um, increment operation day, normal day in the life of station, I'm mm-hmm. working with whoever is assigned to also work that day. So. And I, I never know who that's going to be, but I kind of like that because every day is a little bit a little bit different, and yeah. you really have to be pretty adaptable in who you can work with because you're working with all different personalities mm-hmm. on any given day. Okay. So for, for SpaceX, when you say, for, for that example, um, you say, you know, you're going to be working with a core team for, for that mission. Is it just the... Uh, grapple operations and and release operations or is there is there more to that is it like is it it's mostly that so it's mostly planning up through um, capture and birthing operations we're also the flight specific team that will be on for the the release of that vehicle but um, the flight director will also help integrate some of the operations that occurred during that birth time frame so if there's Ah. payloads that are brought up for example in the trunk of dragon um, I will help integrate some of the robotics operations to help take uh, that payload out and deploy it on station wherever it goes, Okay. for example. Yes. Is, is there something on SpaceX 12 in the trunk or no? There is. It's called the Cream ah, Payload. Cream. Cool. Yes. Nice. It is cool. What does it's, it do? It's analyzing cosmic rays. Awesome. Which sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I wish I was... Uh, a smart scientist to be able to design that, so I don't know much too know too much about cosmic rays, but but you do know I imagine how to that grab it with a robotic arm intense. while a space station is flying at seventeen thousand miles an hour and attach it somewhere that's, else. That's so, the easy part. That's, yeah, the, that's the easy part. You say easy, but it sounds super hard and cool and complicated, all of the above. Oh, that's amazing. So you guys just know. So you have to know so much to be to kind of be successful. But you know, going back to like the. Um, the day-to-day stuff. Um, so, for, for for you, you know, you say you can you can do a shift, you know, anywhere. You can be on for a week and then have a week off and then be on for another. But there's three there's three shifts. So how do you how do you kind of fit that into your schedule? That one week you're going to be working a normal, you know, maybe a normal nine to five, but then the next week you're going to be working the midnight shift or the or the orbit three shift where you're you're there while the crew is sleeping right um uh sort of that's uh is it three to three to midnight three to midnight three to midnight yes so what's so how do you how do do you fit that into your schedule so you get kind of used to what we call sleep shifting sleep shifting um similar to anyone that does shift work so a lot of medical field for example manufacturing yeah similar to that um so we'll work you know in the office 
when we're not on console, normal daytime hours. And mm -hmm. then as we're preparing to work night shifts, we'll take a day or two to, to shift our sleep pattern so, over to work in the night shift. So do you go to bed like a little bit earlier then, like incrementally, or does it? Everyone does it a little bit different. different Some okay. people slam into it. <laughs> <laughs> they um, kind of nap before they go in and, okay. and stay up that first shift and then sleep immediately after. That's kind of how I do it. Okay. Um, but oh, some people will kind of gradually shift their okay. sleep the couple days before they'll stay up. And Have you gotten used to it or do you still find yourself sort of, you know, oh, I'm going to have to stay up and get, I'm going to be tired for, for this first time? Or It's you know? a good mix of both, good I would mix. say. Okay. Yeah. Um, I've gotten pretty used to it and yeah. pretty good at what works well for me. Okay. And I would say that's probably the case for most people. Huh. Um, we also have a team of medical professionals that can help with hey. um, recommending sleep patterns if you need it. Nice. That will work for you specifically, <laughs> yeah. Is there essential stuff that you always have to bring with you? So, um, you know, is coffee just an absolute must or? It is for me, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Especially if you've seen the YouTube video, right? <laughs> yeah, having the coffee meet, uh, with you the whole time. I would be the same way, too. I drink a ridiculous amount of coffee. But, you know, I'm guessing yeah. you have, um, you can bring food in. Because you're, you're there, right, the whole time. So you have to bring food. You have to be prepared for the for the whole rest of the day, so. Everything we need to execute is obviously on console, so all of our procedure books and everything that we need from a technical perspective is there, mm -hmm. you know, so we don't need to bring any of that stuff. But right. okay. yes, coffee is essential. Yes. There's a coffee, a uh, very stellar coffee bar <laughs> that we have available to us, but our breaks are pretty minimal, so whenever mm -hmm. we're not in communication with the satellite is kind of when we take our potty and our food breaks. Um, so most people will pack a lunch and run in the microwave in the few minutes that we have. Uh, okay. Loss of signal with Yeah, you with only, the there's a handover. We talked about this with Bill Foster, and I'm not sure which episode that's going to be at this point, but uh, Bill Foster talked about that uh, um, uh, handover of communication and right. how, how that works. You know, what when you guys are get, receiving that data and where the space station is, how that how all the talking digitally, I guess, works. And um, right. I guess those those periods can be only a few short minutes, so you gotta run and, and take that break real fast, otherwise you gotta be in the room ready for any kind of communication. So I'm sure you appreciate those breaks every once in a while. Yes, for sure. <laughs> so um, let's go back to, you know, how, you, in the very beginning, you talked about how Mission Control you know, it looks modern, and and just being in that room, like it, it, it's it's super cool. It's it's very snazzy, nice desks, nice computers. But it wasn't always like that. So how, kind of how has Mission Control evolved over time? You know, from the from the classic when you think about the Mission Control with the with the with the, you know two monitors and all the buttons. You know, how has that evolved over time? Well. Pretty much with as computers has evolved, right? <laughs> so the computer technology is kind of what drives the capabilities sure. within Mission Control, and we try to upgrade and kind of keep current with those those capabilities as best we can. Mm -hmm. So back in the day, you know, they flew to the moon on a single IBM mainframe computer. Mm -hmm. These days, we have networks of computers that are driving the workstations that we use. Of okay. course, we have um, much slimmer and many more monitors to be able to <laughs> to monitor data and just the communication resources are just so different today than they were then so yeah. um yeah we try to upgrade and make sure we're making use of the latest technology to enable us to do what we do as fast as we can awesome 
that's uh, I mean you have all the kinds of very cool technology you have you have the monitors you know there there a lot of it is it kind of looks like a desktop computer so it's it's kind of intuitive in the way that it's it's designed but you also have the headset and you can talk to like you said the loops you can go on whoever you want to talk to there so it seems kind of it it seems you know it, it seems like it would work is there anything you would want to you know anything that you think would make it better anything that you're kind of looking forward to in the future or something that would be you know, do you want do you want the data shooting directly into your eyeballs, or do you not want that? You know, <laughs> it's hard for me to imagine. I don't know. I haven't thought too much about that. But you know, I'll start with wireless headsets. That would be nice. So oh, we could you okay. know roam around a little bit. Right now yeah. we have a little bit of challenges with um, wireless headsets okay. now, so we don't have that. But yeah. Um, so those types of things, and okay. um, just to make it more comfortable, really. Yeah. Yeah. Cool cool TV screens. There's a, there's a ton of technology out there that you know, doesn't really fit into our price point budget, yeah. but um, there's some cool stuff. We got nice projectors now. I'm just waiting for holograms. I think that'll be pretty cool. Just there, you go. there you go. <laughs> uh, so what about, the, um, what about the culture? You know, I, I, there has been a different a, quite a culture change, really, in, in Mission Control. I, I would think, you know, how's um, what was it like before, and, and what is it, kind of the, is it is it like now? What have you learned over the course of time that that makes it what it is today? So the interesting thing about flight operations and the flight operations directorate that I that I work for, mm-hmm. um, it's a very traditional organization in a way. So the founding okay. fathers, we talked about Gene Krantz and Chris Kraft. Mm-hmm. Um, they were kind of the founding fathers of the principles that were built on, and we still adhere very much to those those principles. And really, in that, um, the actions of even you know the lowest level worker all the way up through the top of the management chain could have ultimate consequences. So, it's a very we understand it's a very serious role that we all play. Definitely, and that um, starts getting trained into the flight controllers and instructors and everyone we bring in to the organization kind of from day one. So it's a very serious um, job, mm-hmm. although fun. Um, <laughs> so we definitely understand that burden and we um, make sure that everyone kind of adheres to that level of scrutiny in their day-to-day work. Makes a lot of sense. A serious mm-hmm. culture for a serious job. That's 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 really important. Um, yeah. So has that culture sort of translated because like you said you know there's networks right you're t- you're not only with the systems but with the mission controls as a whole there it has expanded across the globe there's there's other mission controls out there so has that culture kind of expanded outwards is it is it all the same is everyone you know ha- t- about the international i guess collaboration sort of side of, yeah, uh, we, of mission operations we hope so we hope okay. that it influences everyone that we work with yeah. although i will say you know, every country or every flight control team kind of around the world has their own kind of culture and personality in a way. Um, so we're actually learning a lot from them, and hopefully they're learning a lot from us, being that we've been in the business for a really long time. So yeah. um, we are very traditional in how we approach things from a foundational principle. Um but we're still learning new things every day, so we're we're also trying to improve and be agile in in our operation and improving 
how mm-hmm. we operate as well. So yeah, a lot has changed. You know, you guys are training all the time, thinking about all these different scenarios that might that might happen, but then also evolving. You know, like, like you said, culture, but also the technology and just things are expanding, things are growing. So kind of fitting along with that. So, but. I think that's about all the time we have. So uh, okay. for the listeners, if you want to know more or you have a suggestion of, of what we could talk about on this show, or if maybe you have a question uh, for Mary, you want to know more about Mission Control, just stay tuned till after the music here and learn how to submit those ideas. Mary, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Mission Control, like I said in the beginning, is I think one of the coolest parts of NASA, especially JSC, but honestly, just that it's amazing it really is cool what you guys do and and the things that i think it's because of the operational aspect of mission control that we were able to land on the moon and i think that's really cool and i think it's just amazing you're a part of it so i'm very happy you were able to make some time out of your busy schedule so thank you it's my pleasure absolutely Hey, thanks for sticking around. So, Mrs. Mary Lawrence is a flight director in Mission Control Houston, uh, and mostly she works missions related to the International Space Station. If you want to know more about what goes on and some of those missions that she is controlling and some of those, uh, what was it, high-tempo missions, you know, uh, you can go on nasa.gov ISS to learn the latest of all the high-tempo activities going on in the International Space Station. On social media, we're very active. On Facebook, it's the International Space Station. On Twitter, it's at space underscore station, and on Instagram is at ISS. I think we're verified on all those different platforms, so just go to any one of us, follow us along on our journey, and we'll show you all the cool stuff going on up there. But, uh, you know, Mission Control, we're studying a lot more things and training for a lot more uh, activities, including, and we alluded to, Orion. Uh, go to nasa.gov slash Orion to learn everything about that. And, you know, we have verified accounts uh, across all social media, as well as commercial crew. nasa.gov slash commercial crew. Uh, those are the missions where some of our astronauts are going to be flying on uh, vehicles that have been uh, designed and created by commercial companies in conjunction with NASA, um, uh, including SpaceX and Boeing. And uh, we have some folks that are going to be flying on that coming up here soon. So uh, go to that website and stick along for that journey. And I think we have some social media sites associated with there too. So I think they're all verified, pretty sure. Just look for the little check mark. Uh, So... Uh, just use hashtag AskNASA on any one of those platforms uh, to submit an idea for the show. Make sure you to mention it's for Houston. We have a podcast, and maybe we'll address your uh, uh, question in the future on one of the future episodes. We have a pretty big bank now of a, of a couple episodes that we've been recording over the past couple months. Uh, so we may be a while until we get to your question, but I promise we will. So this podcast was recorded on June 19th. Thanks to Alex Perryman, John Stoll, and Brandy Dean for helping set this up. And, of course, thanks to Mrs. Mary Lawrence for coming on the show. We'll be back next week. See you then.